This is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. First up, we have none other than Walter Himmel, who's going to talk about a group of increasingly used drugs, what I like to call the MABs. All these drugs end with MAB. Now, these drugs can mess up your patient's immune systems and cause a whole slew of diseases. The key point here is that we really need to carefully scrutinize our patient's medication list for these drugs and understand the diseases that they cause. All right, here we go. There is a massive revolution in the world of immunology, cancer therapy, and producing great results, great benefits, but as well, tons of brand new diseases that you will see and you've never heard of, and it's happening right now. So what am I going to do today? I'm going to be as simple as possible, but not simplistic. I'm going to be as complex as necessary, but not complicated. At the end of the next few moments, you're going to realize there's lots happening out there, and you're seeing it now. I'm going to talk about checkpoint inhibitors and immune-related adverse effects. Checkpoint inhibitors and immune-related adverse effects. So what's happened with the world of immunology? You may have heard of a drug called infliximab or rituximab. These drugs suppress the immune system. They're used for diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus erythematosus, and other autoimmune diseases. And they're amazing. They treat psoriasis. They make lives much better, but they suppress the immune system. So when these patients arrive with sepsis and pneumonia, they may appear to have the flu or a virus infection, but they're immunosuppressed. Their white counts may be normal. Neutrophils may be normal. Their lymphocytes may be normal. They may look like they've got the flu, but they're deeply immunosuppressed and they're harboring gram-negative sepsis. So every time you see a patient on a group of drugs that ends in the letters M-A-B, MAB, monoclonal antibody, suspect someone who's deeply immunosuppressed. But that's old news. I'm talking about some brand new diseases. These drugs stimulate the immune system. The immune system now attacks those cancer cells. Well, what was the problem? Cancer cells are very intelligent. Cancer cells fool your, fool your body into believing they are you. And these drugs unleash the immune system. But there is a problem. They have unleashed your immune system. They've stopped your suppressor cells from suppressing you from attacking you. But now that they're attacking the tumor cells, soon enough, they may start to attack you. And they produced 20, 30, 40, 50 brand new diseases, such as dermatitis, myocarditis, meningitis, colitis, gastroenteritis, iritis. These are diseases that you think you know, but they're not. These are brand new diseases caused by the creation of the autoimmune system, which is now attacking the cancer cells and now have started to attack you. So here's what I'm going to do right now. 
I'm going to review the immune system. I'm going to review how it's triggered up, how it's controlled, and what happens when you de-repress the immune system to attack cancer cells. And then what happens when it's so de-repressed, it attacks you. Why is this important to know? These patients always come to the emergency department. They've got cancer. Now they've got headaches, chest pain, back pain, weakness, heart failure, kidney failure, hematuria, bloody diarrhea. And guess what you're going to think? You're going to diagnose diseases you've been diagnosed for, you've been diagnosing for 10, 20, 30 years, but they're brand new diseases to think about. So what's the immune system all about? The immune system is about protecting you from the environment. The immune system is about protecting you from invaders and cancer cells. It's got the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. The innate immune system are macrophages, lymphocytes, neutrophils, and complement. Lovely. The adaptive system are all about B cells and T cells. And that's fantastic. And if they work, they will prevent you from getting sick. But what happens if they get carried away? You get a cytokine storm. They always get carried away. So your body has methods to control the system from getting away. You've got a coagulation system called factors 12, 11, 10, and 8, 7. You have an anticoagulation system called protein S and protein C. You've got an immune system called innate and adaptive immunity. And you've got an immune suppressive system, which prevents the immune system from getting carried away. And those are called checkpoint inhibitors. Now, why are cancer cells brilliant? Well, cancer cells, if they're smart, mimic you. Cancer cells develop markers, protein markers, so your immune system think it's you. And the immune system just calms right down and does nothing as the cancer cells grow more and more and more. Melanoma is an expert at this, and so are most cancers. So what are these markers on these cancer cells that mimic you? What are these markers on these tumor cells that mimic you? They've got names you've been hearing about for many, many years and probably have forgotten what they mean. They've got markers called HLA, human leukocyte antigen. They've got markers called MHC, major histocompatibility complexes. These cancer cells have the same markers that you have. And what do these markers do? They tell your immune system, it's okay. I am part of you, leave me alone. And immunologists now realized if we can stop that false inhibition of the immune system by cancer cells, the immune system will now recognize them and attack the cancer cells. That's exactly what checkpoint inhibitors have done. The checkpoint inhibition prevents your immune system getting carried away, and your checkpoint inhibitors prevent the inhibition so now your immune system will attack the cancer cells. So let's give you a few examples. Let's say you've got melanoma. Let's say you've got metastatic lung cancer. You've had radiation. You've had chemotherapy, and it's all failed. What's left? The immune system. So you'll get a drug like pembrolizumab, another MAB. What will that drug do? It will do one of two things. It will attack the marker on your tumor cell, that makes you believe it's you. It'll cover up that marker so the tumor cell no longer has a shield to fool you into believing it is you. Now your immune system is triggered and will attack that cancer cell. Or it'll do something else. The antibody you're given 
the checkpoint inhibitor antibody, which ends in the letters MAB, monoclonal antibody, will attack the receptors that have been fooled by the cancer cells. Why do they do it? Well, the cancer cells have been fooling you, the MABs attack the markers, now your T cells are turned on. And what do they do? They destroy cancer cells and they destroy them extremely effectively. So everything's great, everything's wonderful. Until two weeks later, three weeks later, four weeks later, perhaps four months later, perhaps five years later, something suddenly goes wrong. What went wrong? The following. Not only have your T cells attacked your cancer cells, they've attacked your brain, your skin, your heart, your kidney, your lungs. Now you're in serious trouble and you go to the emergency department. And how in the world would the emergency doctor ever diagnose what's going on? These are brand new diseases. So I'm gonna go through a couple of diseases. How soon after starting these monoclonal antibodies, these checkpoint inhibitors, the diseases appear, sometimes quite early, two, three, four weeks, the first presentation is often a skin disease. So if a patient's on a MAB, appears in your apartment, look up the MAB in your iPhone. And if it's this checkpoint inhibitor, they've got a skin rash, such as vitiligo, eczema, macular papular rashes, Stephen Johnson syndrome, bulla, vesicles, dress syndrome. Ask yourself, could this be an adverse effect of the monoclonal antibody, which has unleashed your T cells? Yes, they could. Why is that important? Well, these are brand new diseases. The treatment often involves calling their oncologist, stopping the MAP, starting prednisone, or admitting them to the hospital. But you don't even consider these new diseases, the patient could be in serious trouble. You'll be treating them for your old diseases that look exactly the same. After dermatological diseases, what's the next presentation? GI diseases. Patients on checkpoint inhibitors often develop antibodies to your GI system. How do they present? Diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal pain, bloody diarrhea, colitis, bowel perforations. Have you seen these conditions before? Well, of course you have. But when you review the drugs, if these patients are on monoclonal antibodies, and if you look it up and it says checkpoint inhibitors, their colitis might be autoimmune colitis triggered by their checkpoint inhibitors. Their simple diarrhea might not be gastroenteritis. It might not be C. diff. It might be some parasite, but it might be autoimmune GI disease caused by checkpoint inhibitors. Call their oncologist. Don't jump to conclusions. Get your stool tests, get your cultures, but think, could this be adverse effect of checkpoint inhibitors? By the way, this isn't rare, this is common. Why is that important to think about? Because the treatment is not flagell, the treatment is not Cipro, the treatment is stop the checkpoint inhibitor. Start the patient's not prednisone, perhaps, but most of all, think about it and call their oncologist or call someone who knows more about this than you do. So we know the early presentations are skin rashes. Could be serious. The early presentations are diarrhea. Could be serious. How else does it present? Pneumonia. Autoimmune pneumonitis. When these patients come in with pneumonia or a pattern on their chest x-ray, is it pneumonia? 
Is it metastatic lung disease or is it an autoimmune lung disease caused by checkpoint inhibitors? What do they think about this? Very simple. They've got cancer. They failed chemotherapy. They're on some drug ending in MAB. You look it up and it says checkpoint inhibitor. Yep, it could be autoimmune pulmonary disease. And this is not treated with ceftriaxone. This is not treated with antiviral agents. It's treated with prednisone and stop the checkpoint inhibitors. What are the other diseases? Central nervous system diseases. Aseptic meningitis. Guillain-Barre syndrome. Peripheral neuropathy. Now listen up. What I'm about to say is going to absolutely shock you. Your patient, and you're getting bored of hearing about this, has cancer. They've successfully been treated with MABs. And you looked it up, that's checkpoint inhibitor. And now they seem tired and weak. They could have hypothyroidism from autoimmune thyroiditis. Their blood sugar is up. They could have diabetes caused by autoimmune diabetes caused by a checkpoint inhibitor. Their sodium is low and their potassium is high and their blood pressure is low. Are they septic? They could have Addison's disease caused by checkpoint inhibitors. How about this? Their blood pressure is low. Their thyroid is low. Their sugar is low. They're depressed. Do you realize checkpoint inhibitors can cause hypophysitis? Checkpoint inhibitors can cause antibodies to your pituitary gland, and you can get pan pituitarism, which can present three, four, five months after the initiation of a checkpoint inhibitor. Could this be confused with sepsis? Could this be confused with depression? Could this be confused with Hashimoto's thyroiditis? Could this be confused with sexual dysfunction with depression? Absolutely. What's the trick? What is the indicator? Very simple. They have cancer and they're on a drug that ends in MAB, monoclonal antibodies. You look it up and you see the word checkpoint inhibitors, endocrinopathies, apophysitis, colitis, meningitis, dermatitis, Dressler syndrome, Dress syndrome, pulmonary diseases. They could all be caused by checkpoint inhibitors. So what do I want you to remember? For goodness sakes, review the drugs as difficult and as boring as it might be. If words end in MAB, look it up on your iPhone. And if you see the word checkpoint inhibitor, you can suspect any autoimmune disease brand new to our specialty. And you will be the first one to diagnose it. And this is what you have to know. Wow, what an eye-opener about MABs. Thanks, Dr. Himmel. By the way, Dr. Himmel will be speaking at the Virtual EM Cases Summit November 11th to 13th. After a couple of weeks since we've opened registration, as of the time of this recording, there's already been about 300 of your colleagues that have registered for the conference and probably a whole lot more by the time you listen to this. All the details and easy registration are at emcasesummit.com. Okay, next we have Dr. Lior Summer, our expert on ENT emergencies. You've probably heard him before on EM cases. He's going to give us the first quick hit of a series of quick hits on ear, nose, and throat clinical gems. Take it away, Dr. Summer. Thanks so much for inviting me to speak for this EM quick hits. I'd like to tell you about a case of a 34-year-old man who presents to your emergency department with a severe sore throat. 
At triage, he's noted to have a temperature of 38.2 degrees Celsius and some slight tachycardia with a heart rate of 110. He's triaged to an internal waiting room, and you see him in a high turnover area of your emergency department. He tells you that he's been sick for about three days, and he went to his usual walk-in clinic where he promptly received a prescription for five days of azithromycin, as he usually does for his annual case of, quote, strep throat. When you examine him, there's no trismus, there's no adenopathy, and a fairly normal-looking pharynx and tonsils. He does have some tenderness in the anterior aspect of his neck. Part of you does this old internal eye roll. Does this guy really have just poor pain tolerance, or what? I'm going to speak to you about one of my favorite emergency medicine ENT topics, epiglottitis. I know, this is a pretty basic topic that we all covered in medical school, but I think that over the past 20 years or so, while I've been in practice, there have been some changes in both the diagnosis and management of epiglottitis that I'd like to touch on. Now, most of us were taught epiglottitis or encountered it in our pediatrics rotation. It's often mentioned around when we learn about croup and other upper airway disorders in children. The thing is that after universal immunization for Haemophilus influenza B began in the 1980s and then became truly widespread in the 90s, epiglottitis became increasingly rare in children. At the same time, it became a lot more common in adults. Don't get me wrong, now this is still a rare disease. About one to three cases per 100,000 patient encounters reported in the literature. But the thing about rare diseases is they're commonly missed. So pearl number one is epiglottitis is a disease of adults. And while we were taught that in children, this will present early, usually in the first 24 hours of illness with a rapid clinical course, often the patients will present in extremis, in tripod position, with strider and looking systemically unwell. Adults tend to have a far more indolent course. We have more rigid, larger airways, and it takes more time to develop enough edema to produce severe symptoms that cause a patient to present to hospital. So while children present in the first day of illness, adults are much more likely to present in day three or four of illness, and often will require two or three medical contacts before the correct diagnosis is made. So pearl two is that the key to diagnosis is suspicion. If you never suspect the disease, you'll never make the diagnosis. It's not hard in a patient presenting with strider and impending airway compromise. The real challenge is catching these patients early so that they don't reach that state, or worse. Interestingly, estimated mortality in adults is actually higher at 4-7%, to where in children it's about 2-3%. to Part of this is likely to having comorbidities in adults but I wonder if part of it actually comes down to delayed or misdiagnoses. So who should you suspect epiglottitis in? Well, almost all patients will present with a sore throat, about 94%. That'll be the prominent complaint. 80% will have dysphagia or odynophagia, and 60% will have fever. Now, I know that where I work, in a busy urban and suburban emergency department, we see a lot of sore throats, partly because our EDs are always open and partly because patients lack primary care. So what raises my suspicion? Symptoms far worse than exam 
Now, if a patient is complaining of a bad sore throat with severe odynophagia, and I examine the patient and I see nothing when I look in their pharynx, I get concerned that they have something else, epiglottitis, deep neck space infection. Now, there are case reports of concomitant pharyngitis and even peritonsillar abscesses with epiglottitis, but this is exceedingly rare. So what do you do if you suspect it? Well, in children who have small airways and little in the way of airway reserve in the setting of even a small amount of edema, the next step is to call for help. ENT, anesthesia, pediatrics, this is really an all-hands-on-deck type of scenario. In adults, who usually present well, we usually have more time. In fact, these are the patients that are commonly sent home only to return later, much sicker. So if you suspect epiglottitis in these patients, you should try to visualize their epiglottis and superglottis. So Pearl 3 is learn to use a flexible nasopharyngoscope. And I know that not everyone has access or the training to use an NP scope, but over the past few decades, these have become increasingly available to emergency physicians, and newer chip-in-the-tip technologies have made these devices cheaper and more accessible to smaller departments. It's been my experience, and in teaching, that flexible nasopharyngoscopy is not a well-taught skill during our ER residencies, and that physicians are apprehensive about doing this procedure in the emergency department. But I actually believe that this is a core emergency medicine skill, and that it allows us easy, fast, and accurate assessments of the upper airway in real time. It's well within our skill set, and it's a straightforward skill to acquire. Sure, you can image the upper airway using a number of modalities, but all these are a little bit troublesome. Plain films aren't really adequate in terms of sensitivity or in specificity to either rule in or rule out epiglottitis. Of course, CT is more sensitive and has the added benefit of visualizing other causes of sore throat, like deep neck space infections, but there are often delays in imaging. And the patient has to be placed in a more precarious, supine position. And more importantly, they have to leave your emergency department, sometimes for an extended period of time, putting them at greater risk for airway compromise. So let's go back to our patient. You suspect epiglottitis in this 34-year-old gentleman, and you promptly do upper airway endoscopy and identify a cherry red swollen epiglottis. The patient is admitted to the ICU for observation, given IV antibiotics, and is discharged home two days later after serial exams by otolaryngology. So the MP scope is your friend when you're faced with that adult patient with a gradual onset of severe sore throat, and there's nothing to find when you open their mouth, you stick in that tongue depressor, and you don't see much of anything when you view the pharynx. Next up, we've got Sarah Reed, our pediatric EM expert from CHEO in Ottawa, who's going to review what we need to know about henoch schoenlein purpura HSP. Like epiglottitis, this is a relatively uncommon disease that is commonly missed early in the course. henoch schoenlein purpura is the most common vasculitis in children, and it's caused by a deposition of IgA immune complexes in the walls of small blood vessels. Most cases of HSP are seen in kids under the age of 10, and it does seem to have an infectious trigger because it often comes after a URTI. Definitely group A strep has been implicated, and in smaller reports, there's lots of other respiratory pathogens that seem to be associated as well. 
The biggest morbidity for this illness is from kidney involvement with about 1% of kids going on to end-stage renal disease. So this is a clinical diagnosis, and there are consensus criteria for the diagnosis of HSP. You need palpable purpura or petechiae without thrombocytopenia with lower limb predominance, plus at least one of the following four criteria. Diffuse abdominal pain, acute arthritis or arthralgia, any biopsy showing predominant IgA, so that could be skin or kidney, and lastly, renal involvement, so that could be any hematuria or proteinuria. Clinically, there are four systems that we see involved in the child with HSP. So 100% of the kids will have a rash, and certainly petechiae and purpura are, more com- are most common, but you can see an erythematous rash, macular rash, urticarial rash, bullous rash, and these have all been observed in the less typical cases. The purpura is usually distributed symmetrically over the extensor surfaces of the legs, the buttocks, and the forearms. And in little kids under the age of two, you can actually see the rash on the trunk and the face. 75% of the kids with HSP will have joint involvement. This is usually the knees and the ankles, uh, usually periarticular swelling, tenderness, pain. It's not so common to see erythema or joint effusion. Two-thirds of kids with HSP will have belly pain with or without nausea and vomiting. And in about 20% of kids, the belly pain actually comes before the rash. So it's a good idea to keep HSP on your differential of a child with diffuse abdominal pain. The pain is caused by submucosal hemorrhage and edema of the bowel wall. And intussusception can complicate it in 3-4%. to And that's because that edema acts as a lead point. Kidney involvement is reported in up to 50% of kids with HSP, and this is most commonly going to be microscopic hematuria, but you can have gross hematuria, proteinuria, and even nephrotic syndrome. Hypertension can develop at the onset of the illness or even as the patient is recovering. The kidney function is usually normal, but some kids have a more fulminant course where they get a progressive glomerulonephritis with significant impairment in their renal function over months after the illness starts. And as I mentioned earlier, about 1% of kids will go on to end-stage renal disease. So in eMERGE, it's our job to make this diagnosis, but then to rule out serious complications and to ensure that the child has really good follow-up. So no test is diagnostic, but we do do some initial investigations. So firstly, we really need a good full set of vitals, especially including blood pressure. And we all know what our criteria for hypotension is in kids. But to check for hypertension, which is what we're going to be worried about in this uh, setting, we need to know the height of the patient, the gender of the patient, and the age of the patient to be able to look at the published tables for normal blood pressure for age. And these are available online. So you do need a height for the kid. The rest of the investigations would include doing a CBC, coags, BUN, creatinine, albumin, total protein, uh, immunoglobulins, a urinalysis, and we add a throat swab and ASOT if there's a concern for a recent sore throat just because of the association with strep. If there's significant belly pain, vomiting, bloody stool, an emergent ultrasound needs to be done to rule out intussusception. So the care of the patient with HSP is really all about support. And when we think about disposition, we definitely, in a child who has concern for intussusception, they're going to need that ultrasound and potentially a gen surge consult. They may need transfer to the PEED center to get the ultrasound in the first place. So that's a child who needs some emergency stuff done for sure. Occasionally, patients with severe abdominal pain, even if they don't have an intussusception, will get admitted to hospital if the pain is not able to be managed um, effectively at home, if the patient has really poor oral intake or are dehydrated, for example. 
There is evidence that short course oral steroids in these patients actually decreases the duration and severity of of the belly pain, decreases the risk of interception and the need for surgical intervention. Patients with proteinuria or hypertension will need PEDS nephro follow-up. So if you have either of these findings, you should speak to PEDS nephro at your referral site, or it might be the pediatric consultant where you work. There's a recent Cochrane review that concluded that based on the RCT evidence that we have presently, there's no particular treatment that you can initiate that will prevent kidney disease in children with HSP. If all the labs and the blood pressure are normal and the child is well, they get discharged home. So the vast majority of kids are discharged home. And there's a few things we want to counsel the parents. So they should be pretty aggressive with over-the-counter medications for pain. They need to maintain their child's hydration. They need to be counseled that they need to come back to emerge if the belly pain really worsens, there's vomiting, a bloody stool, or a concern for dehydration. And they also need to be warned that this initial episode of HSP usually lasts about four to six weeks, basically until the rash resolves, and that about a third of patients with HSP actually have a recurrence. And this recurrence usually takes place within the first year after the initial episode. The good news is, is that the subsequent episodes are usually milder. Lastly, we really need to organize very good follow-up and ongoing surveillance for the renal disease because that's the most important uh, issue that we're trying to identify early. There's lots of different protocols out there of how to do this, but I just share one that we use at CHEO, which is basically while the rash is present in the acute phase of the illness, so that's usually for the first sort of four to six weeks, the patient needs to be seen weekly with their primary care doctor for a urinalysis and a blood pressure check. After that, they're seen monthly for about three months, then every two months for about nine months. And if at any time they develop hypertension or changes other than microscopic hematuria on the urinalysis, there needs to be a referral to pediatric nephrology. Thanks very much. Great pearl about the rash sometimes coming after the belly pain. So we should keep HSP in our belly pain differential in kids under 10 years old. The other thing to know is that if you see a kitty with intermittent severe belly pain and a rash, always think into susception. Now for our advertising segment brought to you by Metricade, the amazing scheduling system. Metricade can actually predict what the average physician to time assessment will be any given day by looking at the physician lineup. You know, some of my colleagues see two patients an hour, some see three or four or five patients an hour. If your group wants... Metricade will build the schedule based on this information as well as what shifts everyone prefers to work, creating a lineup that can handle the inflow of patients hour by hour. Best of all, the schedule still feels like self-scheduling rather than a performance algorithm. Now, summer has officially ended in North America on the day of the publication of this podcast, in fact. But as we all know, it doesn't need to be summer for a patient to come in with heat stroke. Maybe you saw a patient this last summer with heat-related illness. Here's none other than EM Swami on the recognition and management of heat stroke. There are so many different causes of altered mental status, but one of them that we have to be keyed in to recognize is heat stroke. Heat stroke is defined as an elevated temperature that results from the failure to handle intrinsic and extrinsic heat generation. Basically, what happens is there's an imbalance between heat generation and heat clearance that leads to multi-system organ dysfunction that's characterized by altered mental status. The problem, of course, is that altered mental status is common, and there are so many different causes. 
standard temperature measurement that we get at the door when these patients present is inadequate because those measures, things like oral temperature or the temperature in the ear or the little magic wand that goes across the forehead, they under-measure the core temp. They're not an accurate reflection. And so in order to recognize heat stroke, we have to get a core temperature early. In fact, I think any patient with altered mental status should get that core temperature done within the first couple of minutes of management. That means a rectal temp, esophageal temp, people talk about bladder temp, any of these are okay, although rectal and esophageal would be my preferred. If those temperatures are markedly elevated, you're going to need continuous measurement of that temperature. Once we find heat stroke, we have to rapidly treat it because it has a very high morbidity and mortality. And the longer we allow that patient to be at those high temperatures, the more damage is going to occur. Typically, the temperatures are going to be somewhere over 105 degrees. I recently had a patient who came in at 106.5, and I've seen patients up to 109 degrees. Like any patient who needs an active resuscitation, we're going to start with some basics, check a blood glucose, get into large board IVs, consider airway support. But the most important thing that we need to do for these patients is immediate cooling. The goal is going to be to get the patient near normothermic within minutes. Very different than when we look at the patient who's cold, who's hypothermic, where they might warm up over hours before we get to a normal temperature. In heat stroke, rapid cooling is the key. Rapid cooling is strategy. How we do it is really important. So getting those logistics down so we can do it rapidly. And the best way to do this is with immersion in an ice bath. There are places that have dedicated ice baths, but you don't need that. A simple body bag is enough. You take that body bag, you fill it with ice, you get some water in there so you kind of get this slurry or slushy consistency, and then you put the patient in the bag. You want to have continuous core temperature monitoring while you're doing that. How to get that much ice can be a little tricky. Some departments have a large enough ice machine, similar to what you find in convenience stores. If you don't have one of those, there probably is one in the cafeteria. And what you might need to do is to send somebody down to the cafeteria with a couple of big buckets, fill those up with ice and bring them back up. That might be the fastest way to get enough ice to do this. You'll see people talk about other methods to cool with tepid water and fans, but this is not the most optimal way to do cooling. And in fact, the studies that looked at fans used a helicopter blade as the fan, not what most people have in their department. So immersion in an ice bath is the best way to do this. Within minutes, you can get patients from 109 degrees down to near normothermia. And the goal for that cooling is somewhere around... 38.3 or 101 degrees. And the reason why we're shooting for that number is because you don't want the patient to overshoot. You don't want them to become hypothermic. Once you hit 101 or 38.3, take the patient out of the ice bath. That's going to keep them from becoming hypothermic. One thing people worry about is that ventricular dysrhythmias often pop up when patients have heat stroke. Those dysrhythmias often don't resolve until you cool the patient. So if they're in one of those dysrhythmias, you can shock, but it's really the cooling that's going to help you to get that rhythm broken and stay broken. Keep that patient in a sinus rhythm. Another issue that pops up is the difficulty in separating heat stroke and sepsis. The patient was running a marathon and then presents to you at 109 degrees and altered. 
we pretty much know what happened. But a lot of these patients are coming from home. Maybe they became septic first. They got Euroseptic or they got a pneumonia. They couldn't escape that heat. So they got that exposure, which led to the hyperthermia. Very difficult to tease these things out. And so in general, it's reasonable to give these patients broad spectrum antibiotics. And then once we've gotten the patient cool, there's a number of different organ dysfunctions that we're going to have to look for. AKI, rhabdo, shock liver, cardiomyopathy, electrolyte issues, a lot of things that we have to be keyed in on. But the key in managing these patients is one, recognition, meaning any patient with altered mental status get a core temp as soon as possible. And then two, once you recognize that they have heat stroke, is get them cooled fast. This has to be done within minutes to avoid morbidity and mortality, meaning the ice bath is the best way to do this. Come up with a system in your hospital to get enough ice to the patient. All you need is a body bag, ice, and water, and then drop that patient in, and you will see them come down from 108, 109 degrees all the way down to a normal temperature within minutes. So the great points here are first to get a core temperature in all patients who present altered without an immediately obvious cause. And second, to cool the patient ASAP, preferably in a bag of ice water. Now, if you don't have fast access to a bag and ice water in your ED, it might be worth speaking to your ED group so that everyone knows how to access these things quickly when your next heat stroke patient comes in. All right. Now, this was an eye-opener for me. I had no idea that there is a link between Bell's palsy and leukemia in children. Here's Justin Morgenstern. One of the fascinating and somewhat scary things about medicine is how much there is to learn, even if you've been doing this job for a decade. I wanted to bring you a very quick summary of a paper in Annals of Emergency Medicine because I think it could change practice for a lot of us, or at very least serve as an excellent reminder. This is Babel and colleagues, Annals of Emergency Medicine 2021. The authors are part of the PCARN group. They're performing a multi-center RCT of steroids in Bell's palsy in pediatrics. That in itself, although really important, isn't going to be all that exciting. It bounces back and forth all the time. There's probably a small benefit. But this paper isn't about the RCT. After they had enrolled... 644 patients with peripheral nerve palsies, they noticed that five had been diagnosed with leukemia. That's 0.8%. Now, one had pre-existing leukemia in remission. We probably would have caught that, but that still leaves 0.6% of kids in their study being diagnosed with a new diagnosis of leukemia. That's not a huge number, but it's way higher than the rate of leukemia in the average child presenting to the emergency department. And it's especially important in this group of patients because steroids are actually used to treat some kinds of leukemia. So your steroid prescription could delay the diagnosis of leukemia or even provoke a tumor lysis syndrome. We don't want that. What are we supposed to do with this information? Well, it's still less than 1%. Say one out of every 150 kids you see with a facial palsy will be diagnosed with leukemia. That's pretty low yield, but Bell's palsy is pretty rare in children. So I'm probably willing to do a screening CBC in all of these kids. But I think the bigger lesson is that Bell's palsy is a completely different beast in children than in adults. In adults, the guidelines are very clear. Unless you live in a Lyme endemic area, we shouldn't be doing any testing for Bell's palsy. It would be really easy to extrapolate that lesson into pediatrics. 
But I think the lesson from this paper is that we need to be much more careful in children. Bell's palsy is rare in pediatrics, but we got to treat it different than adults. We need to slow down. This isn't the auto discharge that it is in adults. We need to do a very careful history and physical looking for potential causes. I will be pretty liberal with blood work, which is saying something as I try to limit testing as much as possible. I don't think that blood work is mandatory, but at very least, these kids need close follow-up. This is a huge lesson for me. Not that I've seen a case recently, but I think my practice would have been influenced by the minimalist approach that we take in adults. Maybe kids aren't just little adults. All right, let's review the five quick hits. Dr. Himmel talked about checkpoint inhibitors. Check the medication list for checkpoint inhibitors. So if the medication ends in MAB, it might be a checkpoint inhibitor that suppresses the immune system and causes this huge variety of diseases from colitis to thyroiditis with treatment that involves withdrawing that MAB and starting steroids possibly, but it's complicated. Speak to your oncologist if you're suspecting a checkpoint inhibitor-related autoimmune disease. Dr. Summer told us about the evolution of epiglottitis from a predominantly pediatric disease to a predominantly adult disease and how they present differently, a slower onset with more subtle findings, and to suspect the diagnosis if you see a normal pharynx in an adult with severe throat pain. Just a couple of things I find useful that Dr. Summer did not mention. Some of the key subtle symptoms and signs that I see trainees missing quite often are, number one, the hot potato voice. Now, this can be subtle. It's sort of like Kermit the Frog from the Muppets. It's kind of like this a little bit. But if you ask the patient and their family if their voice sounds any different, that might help to clue you in. Once you've heard the hot potato voice a few times, you'll pick it up easily. Second, a not-so-uncommon symptom of adults with epiglottitis is the feeling that they're choking when they lie supine. That's one I ask in all my throat pain patients, and sometimes that's the only symptom that clues me in to the diagnosis of epiglottitis. Dr. Reed did a nice review of HSP. Remember, the rash doesn't necessarily have to be petechial or purpura, and that belly pain can precede the rash and lead to intussusception. These patients need follow-up to monitor kidney function and blood pressure. Swami hammered home the importance of getting a core temperature in all patients who come in altered without an obvious cause so that you don't miss heat stroke, and that the faster you get the patient in a bag of ice water, the better their outcome. And finally, if you see a child with Bell's palsy, think about secondary causes like leukemia and Lyme and consider getting some blood work or at least making sure that they have really tight follow-up. All right. Now, if you're interested in creating podcasts or you already have your own podcasts, for the third time, I'm offering the Podcast Camp. It's the only podcast production course specifically designed for medical education podcasts. This time, though, we're doing it online virtually over three days in December. It'll be December 2nd, December 9th, and December 16th. And we're doing it that way so that you have time in between sessions to practice your podcasting. This is hands-on and it tailors to your specific needs. So if you want to learn everything there is to know about how to produce a kick-ass medical education podcast, surf to podcastcamp.org for the details. I'm limiting it to only 20 registrants this year and tickets go on sale September 23rd. So get your tickets while they last. 
All right. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and keep well. <laughs>